I wonder if you've ever prayed in, in a way that has felt really big and has meant you've had to be really brave, really bold, maybe, maybe even felt a bit brash with God. It might have been a kind of prayer of desperation. It might have been a prayer where you just, it's a God-sized problem that needs a God-sized solution. And it's as if you take in a huge breath and then you just pour out what's on your heart to God. And as you land into the Amen, you're kind of waiting for some kind of bang or booming voice to suddenly speak or at least the room to shake. If you've, if you've never prayed like that, can I encourage you to have a go? It's brilliant. In fact, Isaiah, last week in Isaiah 64, uh, chapter 1, was, was encouraging God's people, including us, to, to pray. And he says, oh, oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down and make the mountains tremble. Do you feel the kind of the bigness and the boldness of that prayer? Uh, and Isaiah lands at his amen, and is there a bang? Is there a booming voice? Does the room shake? No, it's as if Isaiah's over here uh, praying his heart out and he gets a tap on the shoulder. God says, I'm ready to be found. I'm here. Here I am. Here I am. Isn't that what we find at the, at the start of Isaiah at 65? I revealed myself to those who did not ask for me. I was found by those who did not seek me. He says, here I am. Here I am. All day long I've held out my hands. I'm the God who is here. We have a God who is here right now. But perhaps if you're in Isaiah's shoes or those times when you felt like you prayed those really big, bold prayers and not a lot's happened around you, it can feel quite disappointing, I guess. Perhaps a bit of an anticlimax, a bit unremarkable. Maybe you're left wondering, why, why is it that God seems so silent? Or perhaps just at the back of your head, you're, you're going... Where is God? Is he there? What a help those first two verses of Isaiah 65 are for us. However you're doing today, we have a God who is there. The God Isaiah prays to, the God of the Bible we read, the God who's the one true living God, the God who we've gathered together today to worship. He's the God who's there. He's the God who is here. And do you know what? In those moments of disappointment, They've, they've run out of the room by the time we get out of uh, chapter 65. There is no room for disappointment. Isaiah prayed, uh, rend the heavens, tear open the heavens and come down and, do, and make the mountains shake, God. And God, by the end of chapter 65, said, I'm going to do something far, far bigger, far, far greater. Scales of magnitude bigger. It's like the opposite of what we sometimes do with our online shopping. Uh, you buy something online, it turns up it's a lot smaller than you expected. We've done that with a baking tray. Fits two fish fingers on. It's very useful, not what we wanted. Opposite way round here. Isaiah prays for something and it's like the small baking tray. What God is offering at the end of chapter 65. Far, far greater. New heavens. A new earth. You hear it? A place of happiness. A place where the sound of weeping and crying will be heard. No more. What was, when was the last time you wept? Might be recent. Might be very recent. Might be this morning. Might be a long time ago. 
Whatever was behind that is gone. It is no more. Isaiah 65, God makes it known that he is a God who is there and he is a God who holds out this promise of what's to come. And he does so that all kinds of people might respond in a way that leads to rejoicing. So first thing that we see in Isaiah 65 is, is the God who is there. And as we see this, we're asked a question, each of us, how are we going to respond to the God who's there? Verse 1, I revealed myself to those who did not ask for me. I was found by those who did not seek me. To a nation that did not call on my name, I said, here am I. Here am I. God's saying he's available to everyone. This verse is not simply about God's people in the Old Testament. Uh, they were the nation who called on God's name. I said God's speaking of people who, who didn't. To the nations around God's people, saying, I'm there for them. God's talking about the people who seem furthest away. And it tells us God hides from nobody. God does not wait for any of us to get our lives sorted before he shows up. God does not wait for us to have our lives together before he takes an interest in us. God does not wait for us to have done something particularly impressive before he turns his attention towards us. Every single story in this room of an encounter with God in Jesus Christ and those of you watching at home, every single one of your stories, you know what? God made the first move. We've already said it in those words uh, where we affirmed our faith, taken from Philippians 2. God in Jesus, what does he do? He, he does not take hold and grasp onto the fact that he is God. But he steps down. He takes on our human nature. Made himself nothing. He became a servant. Humbled himself to death. Even death on a cross. It's, as Paul says in Acts 17, for the people in Athens, God is not far from any one of us. It's true for you this morning if you're here and you wouldn't yet call yourself a Christian. It means it's true for those people in your life who you love, you spend time with, who don't yet know Jesus. God is not far from them. He's saying, here I am. Here I am. But perhaps what's even more remarkable in Isaiah 65 is that God continues to be there for his people even when they to stick a fist up at him, turn their backs on him and go their own ways. Verse 2, all day long I've held out my hands to an obstinate people who walk in ways not good, pursuing their own imaginations. That's the great description of the human condition, is we live according to our own imaginations. And verses 3 and 4 and 5 kind of outline some of the ways God's people were, were doing things. They were worshipping false gods. Uh, alongside trying to worship the one true living God. Uh, it seems to involve worship, communicating with the dead, uh, eating, eating pork and other forbidden foods. And it stinks to God. It's like smoke to his nose that makes him choke. God, to his people, made his ways clear. And yet it's as if they've stuck their fingers in their ears, they're deaf to his words, and it means they're detached from his ways. And do you notice it's all done with an attitude of not letting anybody tell you uh, what you can and can't do. Verse 5, who say, keep away, don't come near me. I'm too sacred for you. I don't like what you've got to say to me. I'll just block you. I want nothing to do with you. I don't need this negativity in my life. 
And perhaps for a moment it feels like what Isaiah's talking about is over here, we're over here. I mean, as the people of Jesus, the, the food laws, well, they, they apply in a different way now. We can, we can have the bacon sandwich if we want before church. Um, I've never been out in the graveyard at night and seen you doing weird things. I mean, that might happen, but I've never seen it happen. It feels a bit strange. And, and we kind of need to realize that the details might be different, but actually what's going on in the level of attitude actually is much closer to home than perhaps we're comfortable with. If you look at verse 11, it, it talks about those of you who forsake the Lord and forget my holy mountain, who spread a table for fortune, fill bowls of mixed wine for destiny. The language of fortune, the language of destiny. It seems that God's people are splitting their loyalties between God and other ways of worship so that they could, within their own control, make their futures secure, make sure their future is successful. Isn't that something we wrestle with? Things that promise prosperity, or at least financial security. Things that, that promise stability, or, or at least a comfortable life. Promises of fruitfulness, well, at least some kind of family life. The promise of a, of a legacy, or at least some kind of reputation. Promise of happiness, or, well, at least a kind of sense of feeling good about yourself. And if anyone gets in the way of these things, well, I'm going to push them away, I'm going to block them, I don't need you in my life. Turns out this isn't so far away from us. And if we're not careful, it, 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 it's, if we carry on in that direction, we're, we're like God's people in Isaiah's day, or as he looks forward to, with their fingers in their ears, deaf to what God has to say. That means we're detached from God's ways. You see, you can respond to the God who's there by being deaf and detached and still look quite Christian and still turn up to church on a Sunday morning. So we need to hear from Isaiah 65. The God who is there is there all the time and he knows every part of our lives. And it means one day we'll have to be held to account. Verse 6, see it stands written before me. I will not keep silence, but will pay back in full. The end of verse 7, I will measure it into their laps, the full payment for their former deeds. And yet, as verse 8, this is what the Lord says. As when juice is found in a cluster of grapes and people say, don't destroy it, there is still a blessing in it. So, I, so will I do on behalf of my servants. I will not destroy them all. Go to the shop later on, buy a box of grapes, stick it on the side for later on. And when you've peeled, peeled off the funny plastic thing on the top, you discover ah, a bit of a disappointing box of grapes. You know, you, know, you know how they start to go brown? And then, I don't know if this is the technical term, but they sort of go extra squashy and slightly slimy. Do you just chuck the whole lot out? No, you probably don't. But you pick around the bad grapes to find the good grapes. But God's saying that's what he will be doing. Amongst what God's people are like, there are still some who are true to him. And there are more in the nations to come who will be true to him. What marks out these good grapes? What marks out this remnant from God's people? What continues to mark God's people, the people of Jesus today? Well, notice how they respond to him. We're told in verse 10. Um, I'm always aware with this. Um, we always sort of pronounce it Sharon, because um, Sharon sounds wrong, doesn't it? Sharon will become a pasture for flocks 
and the valley of Achor a resting place for herds for my people who seek me. That's the mark of the true people of God. They seek God. They seek him. They seek him. And then, and then do you see um, how they're described again and again in this passage? God refers to them as my servants. They're the people who seek God and serve God. If we've got a God who is here, a God who's there, then we're to seek him where he's to be found. Where is he found? He's found in the person of the Lord Jesus. Where do we find Jesus? As we open up the Bible each day and encounter him. Um, down through the church's history, there's a remarkable thing that has just stuck generation after generation after generation after generation that's marked out God's people as they walk with him. They have read the scriptures. They have known the scriptures. They have delighted in the Bible. They have let God's word shape them, sharpen them, direct them. Emily and I went to a funeral of a, of a great Christian man uh, on Friday afternoon. Uh, really remarkable. And it was absolutely no surprise to me that his two daughters standing at the front of the church uh, said at one point, one of our lasting memories of our dad is, whether it was in the study, whether it was on his commute to London, whether it's in later years in the sitting room, each day he had time with God. And maybe this morning, it's just a challenge for each one of us to, to be carving out that time each day. 15 minutes maybe. We could probably all manage 15 minutes. We let God speak to us. We seek him where he's found. And in doing so, we discover what God is like and what he likes. And we, we find the ways in which we can serve. Uh, the ways in which we can give ourselves towards what he loves, what he delights in, what he likes. And as we do so, we come to the realization that we offer nothing to God, and yet he's there for us. Many times we will come to God and discover, and he will point out to us that we're trying to live these split lives. And yet we discover his arms are open towards us. The arms that were opened on the cross, taking the full punishment that we deserve on himself, that we might have life with him. First thing we see in Isaiah 65, he's the God who is here. He's the God who's there. How do we respond? Deaf to his words and detached from his ways, or do we seek after him in his word? And do we seek to serve in his ways? And then the second thing that Isaiah 65 shows us is the God who recreates. We have the God who recreates, and the question that's asked of each one of us is will we be rejoicing? Will we be rejoicing? If God's people were concerned about their future, securing it and making it successful, it was a very short-term picture because it landed them in all sorts of bother. Just look at the comparisons that are made in verses 13 and 14. My servants will eat, you will go hungry. My servants will drink, you will go thirsty. My servants will rejoice, you will be put to shame. My servants will sing out of the joy of their hearts, you will cry out from the anguish of heart and wail in brokenness of spirit. Ultimately, it's a picture of life where, where God's turned his face away. It's a language of destruction and, and death. And it's terrible. And the Bible is very, very clear again and again. Jesus in his teaching is very clear again and again. Rejection of God, God rejects you. You get what you asked for and what you've lived for. But notice he, he does it in this way so that it is a great big danger. Do not enter sign for us so that we don't go there. That we might come and find the God who's there. The God who has his arms open towards us. The one who in Jesus has faced all of this for us. And instead, 
Because of Jesus, we can be numbered amongst the people who rejoice. And what's our source of rejoicing? You must have spotted it in verse 17 onwards. Aren't they some of the most remarkable verses? Look, I am creating a new heavens uh, and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. Be, but be glad and rejoice forever in what I create. For I will create Jerusalem to be a delight and its people to be a joy. You get that sense of rejoicing? But notice, it's not just God's people who are rejoicing. Verse 19, I, God says, I will be rejoicing over Jerusalem and take delight in my people. The sound of weeping and crying will be heard in it no more. And then it's as if we're given a tour of this new creation, a sightseeing trip. I don't know if you've been on holiday and you go on one of those sightseeing trips and see all the highlights. It's kind of what we get here. And we take it along. Come with me. Look, there's the hospital. Look at the hospital. Never again. These are verses I can never get through. Never again will there be in it an infant who lives but a few days. An old man who does not live out his years. The one who dies at 100 will be thought a mere child. The one who fails to reach 100 will be considered accursed. That gets me every time. But so it should. Isn't that remarkable? And okay, we thought, hold on, isn't new creation, there's a place of no more death. But Isaiah here and, and God through Isaiah is using language we get. We get. It's our everydayness. No more stories on the news of, of children dying young. Somebody who dies at 100, we think that's a long life, right? New creation, that's nothing. Just getting going. A mere teenager. And then we're, we're taken to the housing estate, where all the houses are. Come, come and have a look with me. Come and have a look. Do you see? They will build houses, verse 21. They will dwell in them. They will plant vineyards and eat their fruit. Okay, so there's some houses and, and some allotments, maybe. Uh, no longer will they build houses and others live in them. There's no threat of eviction. As for the days of the tree, look in the garden. Those big trees that have been there forever, that are really rooted. That's what God's, it's going to be like for God's people. They're going to be rooted and secure. Uh, and, and, and look inside the house, uh, around the, the living room. Uh, and you know, you've got the, uh, the people who've come back from work. And it's been a delight and a joy. We don't often get to say that about our work, do we? Sometimes, but not always. Uh, and the family life that's pictured. Absolute delight. I don't know, whatever family looks like for you, there are those crunch points, aren't there? Not here. And then, and then we're taken to our relationship with God. It's very easy when we think about new creation just to think about the things we're going to get, what it's going to be like, what's it going to be like for me. It's all centered on this ultimate relationship with God. Before they call, God says, I will answer. While they are still speaking, I will hear. Like picking up the phone and, oh, you're already there. Amazing. And then finally, we're taken to the zoo. Come and have a look at the zoo. Let's go on a trip to the zoo. The wolf. We'll, Verse 25, and the lamb will feed together. The lion will eat straw like the ox. The dust will be the serpent's food. And this is written in a way that should, should make us homesick. As those who are seeking after God and trying to serve in his ways, this should make us feel homesick. Every time this week when maybe you've got a hospital appointment, a doctor's appointment, you, you have to pop out some paracetamol. Let it lift your eyes to the day when those things will be no more. Or when you put the key into your front door. You know you're never going to live there all the time, forever. But there is a forever home. 
or when work's frustrating or family life crunches. And lift your eyes to what's coming. Or there's times when you, you pray and you feel a bit disappointed at the end of it. <laughs> no, that feeling won't be there forever. Or when you go to the zoo or you watch the wildlife program or your cat scratches you. Know that one day the lion and lamb will feed together. Let's, let's feel the homesickness for this. Because as we do, it will help us to serve. We can't bring these things about in our world, in our broken, broken world. But we can make a difference. We can make a major difference to the people around us. And we can do so in the name of Jesus and tell people that there is a God who is here. It's one of the reasons we're, we're building the hub. Isaiah 65 tells us there is a God who is here. His arms are open. Is our response to stick our fingers in the ears and be detached from his ways, or is it to seek after him and to serve? We see God who recreates. And if you belong to Jesus, that is, that is leading to everlasting rejoicing. And later on in our service, we're going to gather around as God's people around the Lord's table to receive bread and wine. Let that be a reminder to you this morning. God is here. God is here. And he will re recreate the bread and wine, a little, a little taster of the feast that's to come. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that you are the God who's here. And the God who holds out that promise of new creation. Would you help us to seek after you? Would you help us, in light of what's to come, to, to give up maybe the things that feel precious in our future, that we might serve you? For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to continue in prayer as Pauline comes to lead us.